And we continue this morning in Mark 10. Picks up in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up, We left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. As Kevin said, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, and we've passed the halfway mark. There are uh, 16 chapters uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and we are now chapter 10. And so the emphasis of the Gospel changes. The first part is all about Jesus beginning his ministry, announcing himself, becoming, getting baptized like any other human being, gathering his disciples beginning to teach them, showing them and Israel through miracles, through signs, that he really is who he says he is, the Lord. And then you get to the middle point of the gospel, and Peter confesses to to Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one of God. And with that confession, he's achieved what he needs to achieve with his disciples. And the whole gospel pivots Jesus starts off in the north of Israel in the region of Galilee. And from that point, from Peter's confession, he turns to the south and begins his journey to Jerusalem and the cross. He tells them what's going to happen. He shows them um, what it's going to mean. And here, in chapter 10, he repeatedly uses the same phrase. He refers to the kingdom of God more here than anywhere else as he begins to show them what kind of people, what kind of followers can enter his kingdom, can become part of God's kingdom, can become citizens of heaven. So let's look at it. Verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, if you remember from last week, 
Jesus uh, had an encounter with Pharisees, and he also began to teach children. He was in a, a little village. Now he's back on his way. This uh, phrase is repeated again and again as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and the cross. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The man ran up. He's very eager. He falls on his knees. He's a humble man. Good teacher, or in uh, Aramaic, rabbi. He is respectful. He sees Jesus as a teacher. What must I do? He's seeking after truth, after spiritual truth. He's eager to learn. He's humble. He's respectful. He's an ideal student. He would seem to be an ideal recruit for Jesus' discipleship, an ideal person to follow him. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. The issue here is not Jesus' goodness or badness. The issue here is the fact that Jesus came to point to the good, to God, as we will see. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. These commandments are part of the Ten Commandments. These were the uh, two tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. And this, these commandments were the law on which Israel's society was based. It was God's law given in his commandments at Mount Sinai that turned Israel from slaves escaping from Egypt into a holy nation. So this is sort of the foundation of Israelite society. And it's striking that Jesus only mentions the last six. When Jesus was asked to summarize the law, he said, honor God, honor your neighbor. The first commandments, the first four, are all about our relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. No, make no images or idols. Do not misuse my name. Keep the Sabbath. It's all about our relationship with God. But Jesus doesn't mention those. Here he summarizes the last six. How we relate to each other. How we can form wholesome societies. How we can be in good standing amongst the people we live with. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So this man has kept the law in regard to his neighbors. He is a man in good standing. So the issue here is not his character or his relationship with others or his standing in Israelite society. Jesus looked at him and loved him. The word here used for looked suggests scrutiny or examining or searching. So Jesus scrutinizes this man and decides that he loves him. It's a remarkable gift, a remarkable fact, that this man has survived Jesus' scrutiny and Jesus loves him. There's no hint of hypocrisy in him. He's welcomed in 
to Jesus' fellowship. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. One thing you lack, just one thing. Everything else is great. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. This, by the way, is an extreme command, an extreme test. It was the prevailing rabbinical wisdom that you should never give more than 20% of your wealth because it was considered sinful to become poor and make yourself a burden to other people, become dependent on other people. We know that when Jesus called Zacharias, the tax collector, Zacharias only gave away half his wealth to become a follower of Christ. Joseph of Arimathea, who helped Jesus, remained a property owner. We know that the disciples had homes that were in Galilee, in Capernaum. They, um, Jesus and his followers would stay at the home of one of the followers. So this command is not a general command to every follower to sell everything. This is a specific command to this man, a specific challenge, a specific result of Jesus' spiritual scrutiny of his soul. So what is the issue? Well, if you remember, Jesus has summarized the second part of the commandments, our relationship with each other. And that's not this guy's problem. The problem is the first part. Have no other gods, no images or idols. Jesus' scrutiny of this man's life revealed that this is his spiritual problem. This is what needs to be addressed before he can become a follower of Christ, join with the disciples. At this, the man's face fell. He went away because he had great wealth. His wealth had ceased to be a positive thing in his life. There's nothing wrong with money and wealth. But when it becomes a barrier between you and God, when it prevents you from following God, then it's a problem. Jesus had scrutinized him, scrutinized him, had loved him, had invited him to become a disciple, to embark on the most wonderful and incredible journey any human being can imagine. Had invited him to enter the kingdom of God. Had invited him to become a citizen of heaven. But this man was trapped by his wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So what is the problem? What has Jesus seen in this man's heart? What specifically is Jesus identifying as the barrier between him and following God? Well, to understand that, you have to understand the concept of sin. In Greek, hamartanoi is the word for sin. It's based on the Hebrew word. And it means, it's taken from archery, it means to miss, to miss the mark. If your arrow or your slingshot misses what you're aiming for, that is sin. It means, so it means to miss in your aim 
or to take the wrong path. So what does that got to do with anything? Well, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, they had a perfect relationship with God. They walked with him. They were in the garden. They trusted him. They were obedient. They were like children with their parents. There was, only, there was no such thing as good and evil. There was just the relationship with the source of goodness, God. But then they disobey. They rebel. They stop trusting God's goodness. And the Bible says they became aware of their disobedience because of their disobedience. They became aware of a new reality, the knowledge of good and evil. Instead of a God-centered world, like children with their parents, you now have an axis or a dipole, good and evil. You have now a direction. Most people, most sensible people, aim for the good. They avoid things that are evil, that are bad, that are destructive. But if sin is missing God... If sin is aiming for something else other than God, then that is the true human problem. The story of the Bible is that sin, missing God, having the access of your life pointed anything apart from him, is death. If you aim for anything other than God, then bad things are going to happen. Things are going to become destructive. Things are going to become evil. Death is going to happen. And in the Bible, the technical word for this is idolatry. That is, idolizing, worshipping, centering your life, your hopes, your dreams, on something other than God. That's what sin is. That's what idolatry is. And that's why... Jesus, uh, the Ten Commandments begin, have no other gods before me, and make no images or idols. Don't let anything else in the world become the center of your life. Always aim at God, because he is the source of life. And if the axis of your life, the direction of your life, is misaligned, then bad things are going to happen. This is a fundamental teaching of the Bible, by the way. Now, in the ancient world, there were literal idols. People would make pictures and statues and uh, graven images, carved images, of different things in the world that they saw as positive. So, you know, most people back then were agrarian. They needed rain, so they would make an idol for rain, and they would pray, they would sacrifice to the idol for rain, and hopefully their crops would flourish. They had idols for everything, for the seasons, for their harvest, for their family. Children were important. Idols were literal objects that you worshipped, representative of what you thought your life was mainly about. Now you might think that we're more sophisticated than that, but of course we're not. Few of us have literal idols 
although some of us do. But think of the things that we center our life on other than God. By the way, an idol is something good. It's something good that becomes bad, becomes demonic, when you make it the main thing or the only thing, when you replace God with it. So think of your career. You know, we are close to New York. Many of us put a lot of time and energy into our careers. A career is a wonderful thing. It will sustain you and your family through your life. But if you spend any time in New York, you know how many people turn their career into an idol where they start to work way too much, sometimes hundreds of hours. And a good thing turns into a bad thing. It begins to destroy your relationships. It can destroy your health. It can destroy your mental health. When I was an intern in Manhattan, there was a small group that uh, I used to teach at, and it was for burnt-out Wall Streeters who had worked themselves to mental breakdowns. Many of them were still quite wealthy, but their lives are completely shattered. Here's a test, by the way, if you worry about this. Remember one of God's commandments, keep the Sabbath. The Hebrews were slaves. Slaves work 24-7. They have to work. That is the definition of who they are. That's what it means to be a slave. God said, keep one day a week where you don't work, where you make me the center, and that will save you from slavery. It means you're not only defined by your work. You have a significance, a value, independent of your work because of your relationship with me. If you find yourself working without vacation, if you find yourself working seven days a week at your job, it's not a clear career, it's not a job, it's slavery. People can even turn health into uh, idolatry. Think of all the weird fads and diets and gadgets and things that people fill their life with. Think of all the weird things that people eat. By the way, I've, I've decided that the, whenever people ask me about Hoboken, I say the unofficial uniform of, of Hoboken is yoga pants and a yoga mat. It seems like every single person you see in Hoboken is about that. Even family. Family is a good thing. To have people that love you, to have a family that sustains you, to have children, to love and be loved is a good thing. But if you make it the only thing, even that can become an idol. My brother-in-law has almost ruined his relationship with his son because he wants his son to be the football player he never was and tries to live through him. If you demand that the people that you love are perfect, and after all, when you make something an idol, you want it to be perfect, they can't live up to that. Demanding that your relationships, the people in your life, in your family, are perfect is a good way to drive them away because they're not perfect. And they will betray you. They will do bad things. They will disappoint you. The job is to love them anyway. Wealth. 
And that was what this guy's problem was. Why is wealth a problem? Because wealth becomes the main thing that your life is about. Once again, when I was in Manhattan, I had a friend there, Anastasia, and her job was, she worked for Morgan Stanley, was to put wealthy people in touch with uh, hedge, fund, hedge fund managers, find investors for these hedge funds. And she, her job was to create social events where they would mix and mingle, and she had to take out all these rich people to expensive dinners at the best restaurants in Manhattan. What a great job, eh? And I asked her about that. I said, wow, what a great job. Your job is to go to the best restaurants in Manhattan. And she said, it's miserable. All these guys do, and they were nearly all guys, is talk about money. To be invited at all, I can't remember whether it was 10 million or 100 million, they had to just have an absurd amount of money. And all they did was talk about the money conferences they went to and how their portfolios were doing and what are the risks of the future. And she said they were the most boring people she ever met essentially unlimited wealth, and it turned them into the dullest people she'd ever met. Even nationality. You know, it's good to be proud of your country, the place of your birth, your home, your history, your identity. But when you turn your identity in a, in a nation into your meaning and purpose and significance, it becomes evil. In 2004, for the first time, the German Chancellor Schroeder, Chancellor of Germany, was invited to the D-Day celebrations. That's where the Allies celebrate their victory in the Second World War. And he said something remarkable. He said that Germans could celebrate D-Day because they could celebrate the fact that America, Britain, France, and the Allies had set them free from the tyranny, the idolatry of Nazism. The whole nation had become obsessed with Hitler's ideas that they, the nation, with some kind of mystical purpose in the world, ubermensches, superman who could do anything they wanted. And that had produced one of the most terrible wars the world had ever known a whole nation in bondage to the idea of Germanness. It had become an idol. And we all know the barbarities that re resulted in that. Jesus is coming with a new kingdom. Jesus is coming with a new way of living in the world. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. He said this three times in three verses, the kingdom of God. In fact, if you look at the beginning of the gospel, the first thing that Jesus said was, repent, the kingdom of God is here. What is he talking about? Well, Jesus Christ knows all about bondage. He knows all about slavery and tyranny. It is why he came into the world. And he came into the world to set people, to set all of us free. 
free from the bondage of idols, free from anything that would stop our lives being aligned with God, pointing to God. And he did a lot of things. But he wasn't primarily here to teach us, although he taught all the time. Not to heal us, although everywhere he went, people were healed. Not by arguing or persuading, not by pleading, not by fighting people. Jesus just announced a fact. The kingdom of God is here, and he's the king. And now things become very simple. Jesus gives us the terms and conditions for our surrender to the kingdom of God. They're very simple. Absolute, unconditional surrender of all other loyalties and idols. That's what he came to bring us. To enter a kingdom where only God is the center. No axis of good and evil. A new way of life centered on God, centered on Jesus as Lord, where everything else is secondary. There's a great example of this, by the way. We live in it. When the um, first settlers came to America, they were escaping the tyrannies of Europe, the kings and the powers of Europe. And even over here, that tyranny had sway. And so the American settlers rebelled against King George, and they formed their own nation based on new principles. And they wrote this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All men are created equal. Created. That means God, the creator, created every human being. We are made in his image. And because we bear his image, that gives us significance. That is the reason that we have rights. And they are unalienable. That means you can't even give them away. No matter what you do or say, no matter what is done to you, those rights accrue to you because you are made in God's image and that is your significance. Nobody can take away your rights because they're a result of God the Creator. And what are those rights? Life, liberty, and the fr freedom to pursue happiness. That is, no bondage, no idols, no slavery. Nothing in this world now has the right to claim you, to make you worship it, to submit to it. Well, that is, the whole model there, by the way, is based on the kingdom of God. All the early settlers were Christian. They tried to base their nation on these ideas. And so Jesus is saying to us, don't let anything in this world come between you and your creator, no matter how good it is, no matter how wonderful it seems, God is more wonderful. Then Peter spoke up 
We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. He's calling us to surrender, to surrender ourselves and everything that we have. But the promise here is that in return, as citizens of heaven, as members of the kingdom, we will get such riches as we can't imagine. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Typically, we think of it as a barrier to going to heaven. But think of it the other way. Think of Jesus' journey. Comparatively, Jesus was and is the richest man that's ever lived. All the riches of heaven. Omnipotent power. Infinite power. All the knowledge. All the worth. All the glory were his. And yet what did he do? He emptied himself of all that and squeezed through something much smaller than the eye of the needle. The infinite God became a finite human being and entered our world and gave himself away completely. In a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's Supper. Completely, even to his body and blood and spirit. Why did he do that? to bring us back with him to the kingdom, to make us citizens of heaven, to open up the eye of that needle, because with God all things are possible. Everyone in this room has idols in their life. And they're beautiful. We've had them most of our life. They give us comfort. They give us meaning and significance. What Jesus is inviting you to do is to lay them down. Let go of them and come to his table completely empty-handed in faith and trust that the king is going to fill you, is going to give you more than you can possibly imagine. That's the journey of Christianity. To aim at God and through Christ to be brought home to become citizens of heaven, to become family together, to have all the riches of heaven forever. You cannot beat that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that uh, although we get lost, although we are lost, you come to show us the way home. You become our north star. You become our guide, our counselor, our shepherd. We thank you, Lord, that it costs you so much, and yet you are willing to do it so that we could be with you forever. It is more overwhelming than we can imagine. Lord, give us the trust of children. Show us the way home, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.